Nobody's going to buy our products and services unless it's going to help them become better into the future. And I think basically that's what a successful business does. It pays forward to that next generation. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 13 of Improv is No Joke podcast. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, and thank you so very much for tuning in today. Today's guest is Jack Park, who is a football radio commentator, an author, professional presenter, and quite frankly, an all-around great guy. I met Jack back in 2001 when I was on faculty at Franklin University, and Jack was an adjunct professor. Jack introduced himself to me one day and told me that his son had been a student in one of my accounting classes and that he enjoyed my class a lot. Well, here was one of those Cliff Cleveland, it's a little known fact moments. Jack's son, Jim, went on to become a CPA, just like his father. Now, I've gotten to know Jack a lot better over the last seven plus years because we have a lot of the same clients and present to similar audiences as well as we are both members of the National Speakers Association, Ohio Chapter, and we both are on the chapter board this year. As you'll hear in this interview, Jack is a football historian, especially when it comes to Ohio State football. He constantly amazes me with his extensive knowledge about college football. Just the other day, we were talking about an acquaintance who graduated from Center College in Danville, Kentucky. He immediately said that in 1921, Center College upset the undefeated Harvard University on Harvard's home field with a score of six to nothing. And Harvard had not lost a game since 1916. Hey, if you don't believe this story, just Google it. Before we get to the interview with Jack, I'd like to share with you a review that I received on iTunes from NCA VLD Up, and they wrote, First, I must say reading Pete's book, Improv is No Joke, was a very easy read with a wealth of great leadership information. I have listened to several of Pete's podcasts. With each guest, I'm inspired by how improvisation with the two words yes and is a vital part of business. Each podcast is like going to a free seminar and walking away feeling better about yourself, growing your business, and even helping you in your personal life. Those two words, yes and, are so positive in every part of our life. And Pete has made it so easy to understand them in his book and with his podcast guest. Thank you, Pete. No, thank you for taking time out to write that review for me. If you have been listening to the podcast, I would appreciate if you would take a moment and write a review. It'll help the podcast get greater visibility in the iTunes community. Now, here are some instructions on how to leave a review. One, launch Apple's podcast app. Two, tap the search tab. Three, enter the name of the podcast you want to rate or review. Four, tap the blue search key at the bottom right. Five, tap the album art for the podcast, six, tap the reviews tab, seven, tap 
write a review at the bottom and begin writing the review. Also, if you're not signed up for the SN Challenge, please go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and scroll down to the SN Challenge Call to Action and click to register to begin building the effective habit of YesN and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesNChallenge or on the Accidental Accountant's Facebook page. Now, if you're not sure what the YesN Challenge is all about, please go back and listen to episode zero. This is where I discuss the YesN Challenge in more detail. This week, I'd like to share with you an article in Fast Company titled, Yes And. Improv Techniques to Make You a Better Boss by Lindsay Levine. Lindsay is interviewing Sharna Halpern, co-founder of I.O., formerly known as Improv Olympics, a Chicago and Los Angeles-based theater and training center that launched the careers of comedians like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and Mike Myers. And she says business leaders can benefit from incorporating improvisation techniques into their leadership style. She goes on to state that Improv is based on soft skills such as listening and communicating. Listening is crucial because you need to be present and in the moment. Most people are waiting to speak and not listening in the moment. Instead, they're thinking of what they're going to say, she says. In improv, you must listen to what's being said and pay attention so you can react appropriately. If you're not focused on what's happening around you, you'll miss an opportunity to build the scene and the show comes to a screeching halt. And Sharna is spot on. But then again, of course she is. Hello, Captain Obvious. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Okay, it appears that I've completed my to-do list. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Jack Park. Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited today. I am actually in the home of Jack Park. First and foremost, Jack, thank you so very much for, one, letting me in the door. <laughs> Peter, glad you're here today. Welcome. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for get, taking time out of I know you have a very busy schedule, a little lighter maybe in the summer that Ohio State's not playing. But thank you anyhow. Greatly appreciate you taking the time to spend with me on my podcast today. Happy to do it and uh, feel privileged. Oh, thank you. Wow, I got. I'm glad we're recording this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one for posterity purposes. I, I know everybody heard a little bit about your bio in the lead-in, but tell us a little bit about yourself because you're a very, very interesting individual. Well, I'm a CPA to start with by profession. I never practiced public accounting. I was in industry several years, and then I formed my own business. Uh, it's been more than 20 years ago now called Financial Insights, and I uh, basically do leadership training for corporations and associations across the country. I've done a lot of leadership training for uh, state CPA societies, institutes, and associations as they are, as you, of course, well do. And we've worked together, of course, in doing some of that. And I like the corporate work, uh, basically going in and do leadership training for them. Uh, I've also been a radio commentator for Ohio State football. It's a very small piece of the Ohio State football radio work, but I do a, a segment every Saturday and I do a daily commentary uh, on Ohio State football called the Buckeye Flashback. And I've been doing it now. This will be thir uh, this 2016 season will be my 38th year 
as a radio <laughs> commentator for Sports Radio 97.1, the fan. We're the flagship station of the Ohio State Football Radio Network. And uh, it's something I never really started out to do, but it just kind of happened. And from there, I've written some Ohio State football books, and it's become a big part of my speaking business. And so a few years ago, uh, it's actually been probably more than 10 years ago now, I, I decided to marry the two, so to speak. And I, okay. I created this leadership program called The Leadership Secrets of football's master coaches. And it's basically a leadership program. It's not a football program, but it's how to develop leadership within the association, within the organization, based upon what made the greatest football coaches of all time so successful. And almost without with almost with no exceptions, the great coaches were great coaches because they were even greater leaders than they were coaches. So basically, that's what I've been doing over the years. It's a program that basically it never stops growing. There's always something else to be doing. It's always a work in process. And uh, I always find it very invigorating. And, and that's still what I'm doing today. I think I think the audience would want to know, how did you fall into the radio job? You said it just kind of came up or, or happened. How did that happen? Well, I met a man by the name of John Gordon, uh, who was at that time was sports director of what at that time was known as WBNS Radio. And of course, that are, those are still our call letters, but today we're known as 97.1 The Fan. Uh, actually, we're an ESPN station, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. And John asked me to come in and be on a, a new sports talk show 38 years ago, and he says, you seem to have some interest in Ohio State football, and this was uh, <laughs> in September, just as we were starting the football season. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, at that time, the station carried the Columbus Clippers, AAA franchise. At that time, they were a franchise uh, of, of the New York Yankees. Right. They're now a franchise of the Cleveland Indians, but they were in the uh, the playoffs, which started in September, and John said, we'll be on the air for probably about 20 to 30 minutes, and then we got the Clippers game tonight, and but we'll have 20 or 30 minutes to talk about Ohio State football history. Well, that Clippers game was rained out, and John had nothing planned for the whole evening. So when I got there, and he said, hey, can you stay for an hour? And I said, sure. Now, I've never been on the radio before. I've only met John briefly before that. And uh, so basically, uh, we do an hour. And uh, he says, gee, uh, you know, it's a rainy night. Everybody's home. A lot of people are calling in. Can you stay another hour? I said, sure, I can stay another hour. And of course, he doesn't have anything planned now. And at the end of the second hour, he says, can you stay a third hour? And I said, sure, I can do that. And basically, that's how it started. Had it not rained out that Clippers game that night, my radio career may never have had an opportunity, really. I may have never had a radio career. It's just kind of interesting the way things uh, happen, so to speak, looking back. And I can tell you the exact night. It was Thursday, the 13th of September of 1979. Earl Bruce had just coached his first game at Ohio State. And, of course, uh, you know, he replaced Woody Hayes, who had been here 28 years. So uh, everybody wanted to know what about Earl, and I wanted to know about Earl. So enthusiasm for Ohio State football at that time was pretty high. Wow, that's yeah. – if it hadn't – You've had to have ponder that at times over the past 30-some-odd years. Going, yeah. Well, I tell you, I still go past. The studio at that time was at 62 East Broad Street in Columbus. It's just a small building. And anytime I'm driving down East Broad Street to this day, I look over and see that building. And I say, <laughs> wow, I remember coming into that building, getting soaking wet one night, yeah. getting in there because it was really raining, and that's where it all took place. And, and what did you gain your Ohio State football knowledge prior to that to be able to— I mean, you're an encyclopedia as it relates to Ohio State football. 
I grew up in this area. I grew up in a small town right outside of here, uh, New Lexington. I never played any sports beyond high school. I played high school football and basketball, but I never, you know, I went to undergraduate school here at Ohio State. But as a kid growing up, I had a tremendous interest in Ohio State football. It just is something that mm-hmm. uh, I was attracted to. I was very fortunate as a kid. Uh, my dad, mom, and I uh, went to the games. And so I got to see a lot of the games and hop along. Casty was my childhood hero, of course, and, and as he was for everybody uh, back at that time and so forth. There and then, uh, then I went to graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh and and uh, joined the Westinghouse in the corporate world. And of all things, uh, a couple of years later, Westinghouse transferred me of all places back to Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> where I'd gone to undergraduate school. That was one of those coincidences, as you might coincidences, yeah. you might say, and a coincidence and. Uh, I've changed jobs a couple of times before starting the uh, consulting and the leadership development business, but it's it's just kind of funny the way things kind of worked out, you might say. That's I mean that's a, that's a great story, and the the other part that fascinates me is one, you're a CPA, you're very financially astute. You wrote a course on how to identify, explain, and present pertinent financial information to non-accountants. Which a lot of people think, well, that's like a really technical course. And I'm going, no, it's more of a communication type of a Absolutely. course that, that you wrote. Yep. And you do a very good job of presenting that for us. And we appreciate that. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's two good boys I got on this thing. <laughs> I got to go for three now. <laughs> I love out of boys. But, and I've heard, I've heard you speak a number of times. And most recently, up at Otterbein University for the Ross Leadership School. And you did your, your football coaching leadership uh, presentation. And the title of that again is? Yeah, it's The Leadership Secrets of Football's Master Coaches. And the one coach I use probably more than anybody else is Vince Lombardi. Uh, Lombardi was one of the greatest leaders of all time, a very, very, I mean, a a self-made guy and very, very competent. Lombardi, in my opinion, could have done many, many things in life and and had been extremely successful. And he chose football. He played college football at Fordham. And in my opinion, he became the greatest coach, and he left a lot behind. He left his leadership model, and he right. left a lot of documented. His son has documented all that in books and everything, and thank goodness there, because he left he left a lot for the rest of us to really understand what helped him become such a great coach. And correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there an Ohio connection to Lombardi somewhere in this, in this, in his how he got to where yeah. he, he yeah. was the Green Bay Packers yeah. coach. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I would say maybe the greatest coach in college football was Newt Rockney. For, because he was such a creative guy. He really knew football. He played football at Notre Dame. But Rockney also had a personality that really helped expand football across this country. And Rockney was the uh, was basically the Henry Ford of the automotive industry. He was the Andrew Carnegie of the steel industry. Mm-hmm. And, and I call him the father of American football. Now, here's an interesting thing if you live in Ohio. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, he became head coach at Notre Dame in 1918. Okay. Notre Dame's first game that year, which would be the first game ever coached by Newt Rockney at Notre Dame, was played in Cleveland, Ohio. It was played at uh, Van uh, Horn Field on the campus of Case Institute of Technology, <laughs> and which is now Case That's Western Reserve. Right. Uh, I have walked that field. It's basically the field is empty now. It's a beautiful field that's used for intramurals. The stadium and everything is all gone now. But it's an interesting thing happened that day. The date was a September the 28th of 1918. The, and Notre Dame won the game 26-6. to 6. 
The second and third Notre Dame touchdowns that afternoon were scored by George Gipp. Okay. Most people know the win yeah. one for the Gipper story and yeah. Ronald Reagan and all this yeah. and George Gipp. What a lot of people don't know is that this guy even played at Notre Dame, let alone scored the first touchdown. But the first touchdown ever scored for a Newt Rockney coach football team at Notre Dame was scored by Curly Lambeau. And mm. he, the Curly Lambeau. Okay. After Notre Dame, Curly Lambeau would go back to his hometown of Green Bay, Wisconsin. He'd take a job with the Indian Packing Company. And Curly's a pretty ambitious guy. And after he was there a little while, he persuaded the leadership, the ownership of the Indian Packing Company, to appropriate $500 so that they could start a semi-pro football team to compete with some of the other semi-pro football teams throughout the state of Wisconsin. Well, Curly's been gone for 51 years now. He died in 1965, but Curly's team still plays today. In fact, they play at Lambeau Field, and of course, we all know that team today is the Green Bay Packers. Now, Curly was a very ambitious guy. He also coached Green Bay East High School, and uh, they won the state championship of Wisconsin in 1920. He had an excellent, excellent halfback there that he encouraged to go to Notre Dame. Rockney wanted him, and this kid, kid ended up on the Notre Dame campus in 19, would be the fall of 1921. In 1924, he is the starting left halfback and probably the most glorified backfield of all time, the four horsemen of Notre Dame. Right. And his name is Jim Crowley. Crowley is really inspired by Rockney, and he's been inspired by Lambeau. He decides to go into coaching, and he ends up as head coach at Michigan State from 1928 to 1932. A better job at that time was Fordham University. Football has obviously changed from the, <laughs> right. at that time. Right. He leaves <laughs> Michigan State to go to Fordham, and there they compete for the national title every year. They don't quite win the national title, but he has tremendously talented teams there. They win about 76% percent of the, of, of the games where he's coached there and one of his players is a kid out of the basically as I say grew up on the streets of Brooklyn and is educated in the South Bronx he'll play right guard on that offensive line known as the seven blocks of granite and his name was Vince Lombardi <laughs> Now, Lombardi will struggle for 20 years to get a head coaching position, but we'll finally get one, yeah. and that will be in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So what we say is what goes around comes around. Right. Lombardi will coach the Packers for nine years. Uh, he'll take over a team that hasn't had a winning season in 11 years, and within the last seven years, they'll win five NFL titles, including the first two Super Bowls. Yeah. He'll retire at the end, uh, and, and he'll retire in the winter of 1968. So we say what goes around comes around. Lambeau scores the first touchdown for Newt Rockney in Cleveland, Ohio in 1918. <laughs> 50 years later, Vince Lombardi will retire from the Green Bay Packers. That one took 50 years, but as we know in life and as we know in the business world, what goes around comes around, and that's one of my favorite stories of what goes around comes around. I love that story. I've heard you tell it a couple of times, and I, I, I still... I am still amazed at your photographic memory and the, the the ability to remember that much detail and dates and it was a Thursday and stuff. That, that, that's always just fascinated me. By you. But, but when you think of, you, you said that Lombardi is one of your favorite coaches out there, what's the one leadership attribute? that you admire from Lombardi that he had? Uh, I admire there's, there's several of them. Maybe his uh, biggest strength, uh, Peter, is it was his persistence. 
As it took him 20 years to get a head coaching position, he got turned down for head coaching positions. At one time, it was estimated he got turned down 22 times. And uh, he was a great assistant to coach. And he, he also then, when he was an assistant and kept trying to get the head coaching positions, he still continued to build his, his craft, so to speak. And uh, he was mentored by Red Blake at Army from 1949 through 1953. Red Blake, a lot of younger fans today may not remember that name, but Red Blake is basically the uh, Urban Meyer or the Nick Saban of college football back in the 1940s and 50s. He had, I think, four national championship teams at Army. Uh, Colonel Blake actually grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and started uh, his college at Miami of Ohio, but then he went into World War I, and uh, so he ended up graduating from West Point okay. and uh, became a football coach and ended up going back to West Point several years later as their head coach and everything. And he was one of the greatest coaches of all time, and Lombardi was extremely fortunate to spend five years under him. Okay. He learned so much under him, and uh, then he went to the New York Giants as uh, That's right. as uh, basically a man by the name of Jim Lee Howe had taken over as head coach of the New York Giants and completely surprised everybody. Nobody ever heard very much of Jim Lee Howe. He'd been head coach of uh, Wagner College over on Staten Island. He'd actually played for the Giants as an end, but nobody thought of him much as a head coach. And what Howe did was basically revolutionize football. <laughs> it had been done maybe a little bit to some extent, but not to the extent that Jim Lee Howe did. He hired two coaches, one to run the offense and one to run the defense. <laughs> now, he had other assistant coaches, too, right. but he basically put one coach in charge of the offense and one coach in charge of the defense. Today, we call those offensive and defensive coordinators. Yeah. I don't know that that title was used back at that time. It really doesn't make any difference. But the interesting thing about Jim Lee Howe, he hired two unknown guys at the time to run the offense and defense. <laughs> the offensive coordinator was a young man named Vince Lombardi, and his defensive coordinator was a young man in his first coaching position ever by the name of Tom Landry. Right. <laughs> and they, of course, would go on to become two of the greatest college, two of the greatest professional coaches of all time. So he learned an awful lot from these people, and he was persistent. And he was 46 years old before he had a chance to become a head coach. And he had never played professional football either. So it was quite, it was quite something for him to do this. Persistence. Persistence. Yes. That's, yeah. And listening to that story and, and hearing that story a number of times, we can equate it to today that some of the great leaders that we have, they're very persistent. I also hear you say that Lombardi listened. Yeah. Learned. He learned from everybody. So yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 Um, you also told me a story about Vince. He was, he was a very religious man. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, actually, he was, uh, when he got high school age, growing up in what was known as the Sheep's Head Bay, uh, Sheep's Head Bay section of Brooklyn, New York. That's right down on the waterfront. It's not very far from, I've walked through that area and I've, I've gone in there. I've taken pictures of the home that he grew up in and just wanted to get a feel for the area. Mm -hmm. This is obviously years and years later. He was born in 1913. But w when he became high school age, he actually decided to study for the priesthood. And he went to school at a, at a, at a, a school there in Brooklyn run by the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn for young Catholic boys that wanted to be priests by the name of Cathedral Prep. And uh, for reasons he never talked about very much later in life, uh, he came within one year of finishing that. 
And for whatever reason, he decided that maybe the priesthood was not his calling. So he went to St. Francis High School, uh, the largest high school in Brooklyn. And there he played high school football for the first time, you know, cathedral prep for, you know, preparing young men for the the priesthood. Priesthood, Obviously didn't have a football team. Right. (laughs) So he plays one year of high school football. He's a very, very strong guy. He played a lot of sandlock sports. But his ambition was to go to college. He he was the oldest of five children, and uh, his mother and dad had never finished high school. And so his ambition was to go to college, and through playing one year of football at St. Francis, he was good enough to earn a football scholarship to Fordham University. So uh, I think at that early age, we could also see he was a little bit of a visionary. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. But getting back to your th- your point on religion, even though he didn't, follow up and, and become a priest, he went to he went to church every day of his life. And the players on those Packer teams could tell you, basically, uh, he'd get up in the morning and he would go to St. Willowbrode Catholic Church there in Green Bay and attend a service there on his way to the office, uh, you know, any time of the year. When the team was on the road okay. and they're playing, let's say, in San Francisco this Sunday, he knew where the closest Catholic church was in every one of those cities, and he would get up early and go to church that morning, and then he'd come back to the hotel and join the team and then go play the football game. And he was not a man that wore that on his sleeve. A lot right. of people didn't know that too much about him. Right. He did that. It was a very private, private. thing, so to speak, okay. there. But uh, he, he's one of the most religious people ever to walk this earth. Wow, and I bet a lot of people in my audience are listening to that going, wow, I never never even knew that, never had any idea. When I've sat through your, your leadership course, especially this last time at, uh, at Audubon University, you kind of wrap it all up, and I believe you wrap it up by talking about five different coaches. Who, what are those, who are those five different coaches? Well, the first coach I, I talk about is, uh, and you, you'll be surprised when I talk about this one, being an Ohio State guy, I talk about Woody Hayes. Can you believe that? Huh? I'm shocked. Oh, <laughs> stop the presses. Let's rewind. <laughs> There's a lot you can learn from any of these coaches there, and I picked five, and it's tough to bring it to five. But mm-hmm. the thing that I think that, that uh, is the most important thing as a business person wanting to continue to expand their leadership skills or anybody in life, basically what we can learn from Coach Hayes is you will get to a place in life where you can look back and say, gee, uh, I've been able to accomplish a fair amount maybe, mm-hmm. and I'd sure like to thank those people that helped me get where I am. And you know what? A lot of them are gone now. Right. And you can't do that. He found himself in life that way. He'd love to go back and thank maybe that third grade teacher, that high school football coach, that Sunday school teacher, that yeah. neighbor across the street that did all these things for you. So Hay said, you know, I can't pay those guys back. I can't even thank them, but I can pay forward to the next generation. And that was basically the whole theme. You get down to my office, you've seen that. You see that big poster of Woody. It says mm-hmm. pay forward. Yeah. And I look at that every morning as I go to work pay for That's what we really do in the business world. Nobody's going to buy our products and services unless it's going to help them become better into the future. And I think basically that's what a successful business does. It pays forward to that next generation. The second guy we've talked about, of course, is Newt Rockney. Right. And to me, Newt Rockney is the type of guy that you want to learn a lot about to help create maybe a new industry. Now, most right. of us are not going to create a new industry. He helped really create American football. Right. But there's a lot to be learned from him that what Whatever stage we are within the business world, we can enhance that a little bit by looking into the future. So there's some commonalities there between Woody and certainly Newt Rockney. 
Vince Lombardi's the third one. Okay, and that's many another shocker. Are, yeah, another shocker <laughs> there. Another shocker. I have seen and you've seen and everybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure, has seen organizations that tried to do too many things, tried to be everything to everybody. Right. When Vince Lombardi went into Green Bay, they had a playbook that was about uh, <laughs> tremendously big, and they had every play imaginable in that playbook, and they weren't very good at executing any of them. And his basic belief, his basic philosophy of running a football team was: we're going to decide what we can do best, and then we're going to work on that to be maybe the best ever that's done that at the exclusion of everything else. So you can't be everything to everybody. So he picked basically a very strong running offense. It became known as the Packer sweep, and then later became known as the Lombardi sweep. He basically uh, supplemented that with some really good passing patterns, but they didn't have a huge offense in terms of number of plays. They had a basic offense, and there were variations of them, but we're going to do only what we can do best and uh, we're exclude everything else, and then we're going to work on becoming the best that we can be there. And you think of a lot of companies there that get too many products and too many services, you know. You know, there's an ice cream store up here that I love to go to rather than Baskin-Robbins. Baskin-Robbins, how many do they have? 31 flavors or 51 flavors? Yeah. This Tom's ice cream here has six flavors. I like that. I it's much easier to, to decide what I want to do. You know what I mean? I thought you were going to say Grater's ice cream. <laughs> well, Grater's pretty good, too. Grater's also pretty good there, too. The, four, the fourth coach that I use is a man by the name of Urban Meyer. He's new into the mix. That's uh, another shocker. Yeah. Urban is basically the organization man. Yeah. Everything yes. fits together in a big organization. Uh, a lot of coaches have plans. Urban has a system. And you just reload the system. But there's plans laid out within that system for everything imaginable, all the way down to the nutrition and looking ahead to the sophomores that are in high school that won't be coming into college for another three years and doing everything and laying everything out. I mean, basically, he's got a good, an excellent system. He's an excellent recruiter. And he surrounds himself with tremendously talented people. And that's the way he makes it go. I mean, he is truly the organization man, and you got to have one of those to right. lay it out and see the future. The fifth guy is a man by the name of Bo Schembechler. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bo Schembechler from the University <laughs> of Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Now, Bo grew up in Barberton, Ohio. He's a graduate of Miami of Ohio, and he was also an assistant coach at Ohio State under Woody Hayes for five years. In fact, Woody was his college coach at Miami of Ohio. And who would ever have guessed? And that was in 1949 and 1950. And who would ever have guessed that those two would become such fierce competitors starting in 1969 when Bo took the head coaching job at the University of Michigan of all places. And, of course, that was Woody's real nemesis. When he came in here, he said, we got to beat Michigan, and he did a pretty good job of it and so forth there. But Bo, uh, and I've gotten this basically, I didn't know Bo really. I interviewed him once, and I've gotten to know his son pretty well, Shemmy Schembechler, that lives just about five miles from me. I mean, who would ever have thought that Bo Schembechler's son would live about five miles from Ohio Stadium? But he does. (laughs) I mean, you know, his wife is from Columbus. They love being here in Columbus. Bo really put a high priority on the people. Now, other coaches do too, but I don't think anybody ever did any better than Bo. And the his players were his number one priority. And he's I've gotten this second and third hand mm. from a lot of people I know up in Michigan, and I've spoken in Michigan a lot. You have to have a pretty thick skin if you're a high state guy to, to speak at corporations and associations uh, up in the state of Michigan, but we've had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. But they will tell you that this story that he told his secretary one time, if I, if a player comes in unannounced to see me 
and he just wants to see me, you make sure that he doesn't leave here until I can get in to see him. Because he's probably got an issue. Yeah. He may have some difficulties, and it may have taken some courage for him to work. Basically, it may have taken yeah. a little bit of courage for him right. to work up the courage to come in and see me because he's got he's got an issue. And if I'm not here and you tell him to come back this afternoon, he may not come back. Right. So you don't let him get out of this office and you get me in there. And I don't care if I'm in a meeting with the president of the University of Michigan. I will leave that meeting with the president of the University of Michigan and come in and see what my player needs that I can help him with. And uh, there was something about the way he put players first that uh, the many of the Michigan guys that I've interviewed over the years that played there, guys like John Wangler, the great quarterback around 1980 that, that played there, I mean, they respect him just like the Ohio State players have respected Woody Hayes. But Bo was the guy that put people first. And I think in any organization, that's one of the things that you have to do. Because Bo recognized early on that the business that he was in was not the football business. The business he was in people was the business. People, yeah. people business. You know, Woody Hayes wrote a book, and I. it's a great book. It's an evergreen book. It'll never go out of style. It's called You Win With People. And uh, it's true. It's a very simple title, but you do win with the people if you have the mm -hmm. best people. And I think uh, if we go way back, Jim Lee Howe, was a good example of that when he hired Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the mm -hmm. way, to finish that story, the New York Giants had been really poor up until that time. And within three years, he had them win an NFL title. With And Jim Lee Howe was a guy that uh, took a lot of kidding. They said, what do you do around here? You know, I mean, you, he says, <laughs> and Jim jokingly is supposed to have said to a sports writer one day, well, you know what I do? I, uh, I make sure Vince has everything he needs to run the offense. I make sure Tom has everything he needs to run the defense. And me, I make sure all the footballs are blown up so we can play those football games on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> now, that's a little bit of an embellishment, <laughs> right, Peter. Right. But it does show that basically he put tremendous uh, you know, power in those two guys to run their part of the program. Yeah, he, he trusted them immensely to be able to yeah, do that. But he also absolutely. provided them with the tools they needed to become successful no at what question. they were doing. Yeah. And they had great players. They had great players back at that time. A guy by the name of Frank Gifford that wasn't too bad. Wasn't too bad, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, heard of him. I've heard of him before. Uh, of the five, I have to think that I, I know which one that you would rate number one uh, of the five if you, had, if you had to rank them. But I'll keep that one to myself and ask you the question, of the five that you talk about, which one would you rank on top? Vince Lombardi. Okay. Okay. And there's about three or four reasons there. First of all, it took him 20 years to get a head coaching position. So he had confidence in himself when other people apparently didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, Lombardi was never an arrogant guy but he really had good self-confidence. So there's a big difference between arrogance and confidence. Correct. And he had that confidence. And while he was continuing to work toward getting that first head coaching position, he continued to hone his craft. He continued to get better and better and better. Going to Fordham University was a great thing for him, coming right out of high school there. Basically, Fordham is a Jesuit institution, and uh, it's really been founded on the, the, the philosophy that people can really better themselves through hard work and dedication to excellence. And those two characteristics, I think, fitted him perfectly. He was a hard worker. He, it just opened up a whole world, new world to him when he went to college uh, out of Sheepshead Bay there in, the, in that section of Brooklyn, New York. And uh, so he really struggled getting that first head coaching position, but uh, he stuck with it. And uh, 
you know, when he got there, there was far more talent in Green Bay than anybody realized. What they lacked was leadership at the top. They did not have a real coach there before he got there. And so the, the, the talent basically was going to waste. Okay. And that turned over in a hurry. Lombardi did not make a lot of wholesale changes in the players. Sometimes you do. Coaches right. win and they get rid of the players and they bring in other players and all this. And basically he took the players that had won one game the season before and eventually turned them into world champions. And if I remember the story correctly, and I think he'd equate it to, let's do what we do best. And as you're describing it, I'm thinking about when I was in corporate America, uh, the performance review. Yes. And in the performance review, usually at the end, you had goals. Yes. And I may write down, I, for my goals, this, that I'd like to get accomplished this year. And, and my boss would write maybe five more on top of that. I don't know too many people that can accomplish nine, 10 goals and, and successfully execute to it versus here's your top three. It's almost like a balanced yeah, scorecard yeah, method, yeah, yeah. as you yeah, were describing. Yeah. If you have eight or 10, maybe that's a little bit better for somebody coming right out of college. It's got to get a lot of things done, yeah. but they're not overly huge goals. But as the years go along, you're better to what? Yeah. Two or three and, yeah. and make them worthwhile. And make them worthwhile. So let's talk a little Ohio State football. You've been to a game or two? A few. <laughs> just a few. Yeah. But have, have you ever you ever attended the Ohio State Michigan game at all? Uh, just a few of those too. How many? And you've been to, you've you've attended here in Columbus as well as yeah, in the I, state up north. I really don't go up to the state up north anymore. I mean I do we do my you know, I'm on the pregame show right. radio wise. We do that locally here and then I uh, usually watch it on television. Uh, when it's up there, I have not missed a game, a Michigan game here at home. Last one I missed would have been 1952. Wow. Something there. So started out very, very, very young as a kid. Hop along. Yeah. Casty was, I was about this tall. He was my <laughs> childhood hero at that time. But uh, Peter, I think I've gone to 14 games up there over the years. Over the years. Okay. Yeah. And uh, a couple of times my work schedule was such that I, I couldn't go. And I actually right. remember, I think one game, 1977, I had tickets and, and one of my friends used them because I had a work schedule. I was coming back from somewhere Saturday morning and doing that and everything. But I love the Michigan game. There's a When I was a little bit younger, I never thought I would say what I'm now going to say. And I still love being at the games much more than watching them on television right. in terms of the entire experience. But... You see football today better in your living room or in your rec room than you do in the stadium because of technology yeah. and all the replays and everything like that. And I really understand, I really see the plays better. I think most football fans do when you watch it at home. And the big screens now are so great and right. just the technology and everything in, in doing that. So that's had a little bit to do with it. Probably had a little bit to do with it too. But never miss a home game. Never, never miss a home game. Never miss a home game. It's funny you should say that because, you know, I'm, Graduated the University of Kentucky, so a big basketball guy. Yeah. And, and this year I had tickets to the Final Four in Houston. I know you did. And, yeah. and we were sitting somewhere up in the rafters away, but they had the big screen. So you, we, we could see it. It was, it was really exciting. Championship game by far. Uh, Villanova hitting that, that shot at the end. Yeah. But then as I reflected back, one, I think the game goes by quicker in attendance because you don't have the see the commercials and stuff. It just seemed like the, the game was started and it was over so quickly. But well, well where's the replays? Where's yeah. the, I, I, and I actually missed the commentators. Uh, so when it came, this Final Four next year's out in Phoenix, Arizona, and I've been putting in my putting in my application for over twenty plus years. And I think to your point, 
I think I'm not going to put my, I, no, I take it back. I have not put my application in for this next year. I'll probably take a few years off and just be able to watch it at home. You, you, I don't think anybody will ever see a better game than you saw <laughs> well, this year yeah. with Villanova. Yeah. That, that, that's maybe the greatest uh, college tournament game of all time, would you say? That was one of them. One of them. Yeah. And, and, and the other Final Four I attended, the game was won on the last second shot. It was in New Orleans. I forget the year. Syracuse was playing Indiana. And Keith Smart hit a shot from the corner to beat Syracuse. And I, I still remember that. And I've been to a couple other Final Fours. I've been in Indiana. Uh, I saw Kentucky play Arizona. Uh, they lost in overtime, but yeah, that Villanova game was that. Oh. And, and being a Kentucky fan, I, I I I just through the weekend, I just said I just need to remember my ABCs, ABCs. Anybody but Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, Anybody okay. but Carolina. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my Carolina <laughs> folks, I've told that to. Yeah, we got the ABKs. Yeah, ABK too. <laughs> Anybody but Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What was what was your favorite Ohio State Michigan game? Uh, Jim Trestle's second year was pretty good. Okay. Uh, his first year was also pretty good. You may remember when Jim was hired, uh, he was hired, basically the press conference was Wednesday, the 18th of January of 2001. Okay. By chance, Ohio State is playing a home basketball game that night against the University of Michigan. That's right. Now, how many times would that happen? So he's introduced at halftime of the basketball game. Of course, he comes out and speaks to the crowd yeah. for just a, few, a minute or so, something like that. It was announced about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Actually, it was announced the day before the press conference about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But at, at, uh, when he addressed that uh, Ohio State basketball crowd that night, he says, you'll be proud of our young people in the community, in the classroom, and most especially in 310 days in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, we went up there to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 310 days as huge underdogs. Right. And ended up beating them 26 to 20. Now, the yeah. game didn't have anything to do with the Big Ten title or anything like that. Right. Because basically, we would end up 7-5 and five in his first season. But there was something about that game that I'll never forget. It was 23 to nothing at the half. And uh, we held on, and yeah. we had some injuries in the second half. And Craig Krenzel started his very first game ever at quarterback for Ohio State. The interesting thing, Craig had grown up in the Detroit area. So <laughs> here he is up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, yeah. leading it. That was a great Michigan game yeah. in terms of uh, just uh, the love for Jim Trestle. Of course, the second one, his second one was the one that put us into the national championship That's game where right. we beat Michigan 14 to 9, and that game came down to the last second. Uh, Michigan had the ball right around the Ohio State 20-yard line with one second to go, and uh, a pass into the end zone was intercepted, and that saved the game. Basically, won the game 14 to 9. Wow. And uh, that was, you know, I mean, and that was typical of what happened that year. So many of those games in 2002 went right down to the last play, and of course, we won the national championship over Miami in double overtime. Right. So, there were a lot of close games in 2002. Was the Purdue game in 2002 with the the, the catch touchdown because we were we were yes. behind most yeah. of the most yeah. of the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called Holy Buckeye, Holy, Holy Buckeye. Buckeye there oh. and so forth. There, there, there was. And Ohio State played its very first overtime game ever in history out of Illinois that year. And we had to basically beat yeah. Illinois in overtime right, to right. put us in a position where we then could beat Michigan to get the bid to go to the 
at that time what it was called the BCS to play Miami, who was right. a huge favorite oh, over yeah. us, and they were the defending national champions. I think right. they'd won 31 games in a row, and a lot of people told us that we had no business being in that game, and right. you're going to really get embarrassed <laughs> out there. And, and of course, then we were end up able to win that in double yeah. overtime. You've written how many books on Ohio State? Uh, well, four, basically. It's kind of three and a half or four, however you want to okay. count them. Our first book came out uh, called Ohio State Football, The Great Tradition. And it's basically a chapter uh, on each of the series Ohio State has had against each of the other Big Ten opponents. Okay. Naturally, the Michigan chapter is probably the largest, yeah. and the Illinois chapter is big. And, but it's the highlights of great games between, let's say, Ohio State and Illinois, Ohio State and Michigan, Ohio State and Michigan State, and all those chapters. And we had uh, the second book was called The Official. Ohio State and Football Encyclopedia. And that's about a 700-page book wow. that actually goes into pretty good detail of every season in Ohio State football up through 2000. Okay. And it was published in, in the fall of 2001. Right. Well, Jim Tressel, of course, would lead Ohio State to the national title in two years. Yeah. So the publisher had us come out with a updated version of that okay. called the Official Ohio State Football Encyclopedia National Championship Edition. So technically, it's another book because right. it's got a different ISBN number on there. <laughs> and uh, so that would be the third one. Mm -hmm. Then the fourth one is known as the Ohio State, the, the Official Ohio State University Vault. It's kind of right. a book for the eyes. It's just for pull-out memorabilia and so forth. And that came out in the year 2008. And uh, Jim Tressel actually did the forward for us for that one. And uh, Archie Griffin had done the forward of the first two for us. And Kirk Herbstreet had done the introduction to the uh, the encyclopedia and so forth like that. So we felt very privileged that, you know, pretty high-profile people in the Ohio State football program uh, lent their credibility to our books and everything. And you've got one coming out next year. Yes. Uh -huh. You're yeah, in the process yeah. of writing one yep, right now. Yeah, Maureen Zapala, who you know is right. a member, of course, a very, very outstanding member of our Ohio chapter, the National Speakers Association, is a real, real excellent writer. And she's also a huge football fan. She's a Notre Dame fan, but okay. she's a Notre Dame graduate. Okay. So she and I are collaborating on a book which probably – will be titled Buckeye Reflections. We're not sure yet on the title, but okay. it, the title, that title kind of tells what the book is. It's going to be made up of short, anecdoted stories connected to the Ohio State football program. Unusual things that have happened, outstanding things that have happened, humorous things that have happened. Brothers that have played against each other in the Michigan game. Some of the stories will be very, very short. There's a game back in 1944 against the Great Lakes military base, uh, naval training base, where uh, one brother threw a pass and his brother intercepted the play for the <laughs> other team, the Kane brothers. Okay. And unusual and outstanding things like that that we're going to have that. So we're looking at a uh, publication date of uh, August of 2017, and we're having a lot of fun working on it, basically. Oh, I know. I've, I've kind of, uh, we've, we've talked a lot about your travels and, and, and going to the Hall of Fame and, and just gathering up all this information, this unique information. And I know you and Maureen have had a really good time putting this book together, and and I'm excited for you because I'm looking forward to uh, reading it when you're all said and done with it. And well, we're in the stories of things that maybe people were not aware of. Uh, the first female drum major in the United States marching band <laughs> history, you know, Shelly Graff. We're, we were interviewing Shelly. We have a little story on what it was like to become the first female drum major there. And uh, some things, uh, some Usher stories are really funny. I yeah. mean, the Ushers get into all types of situations oh, with great. people and everything like that. 
And, uh, of course, a lot of the players have Woody Hayes stories that we're using and some things. But a lot of the fan stories and the cheerleaders and things like that. Real quick one, Peter. It's uh, This is a very short story, but I, I say it's, it just was a bad day for Indiana all the way around. In 1932, Indiana is playing in Columbus. And so uh, uh, the, they decide to bring their marching band to Columbus for the game. So they board that marching band in buses in Bloomington, Indiana, about 5 o'clock that morning, and the buses take off for Columbus. Well, they put all the in- instruments in a truck. Well, on the way to Ohio Stadium, the truck got lost some way, <laughs> and the truck did not show up at Ohio Stadium until the end of the third quarter. Oh, wow. So the Indiana band was forced to play its halftime, per- perform its halftime show after the game, Plus, Ohio State beat Indiana that day 20 to nothing. So we just say that's a short little story, but just a bad day all the way around for Indiana in 1932. <laughs> that is a bad day all the way around. A bad day all the way around. It's yeah. a great story. Uh, Jack, I, I, we, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, and, and, and we will have another conversation again, especially around the time that your book comes out. Yeah. So I'd like to, I, I, how I've been ending my podcast is a 10 question rapid fire. You have no idea what I'm going to ask, so okay. we'll just we'll, we'll see if we can learn just a little bit more about Jack Park. And, and okay. my, my first one is Urban Meyer or Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes. That was easy. What's your favorite movie? Uh, don't go to very very many movies. Uh, probably Marshall was uh, be my favorite movie that came out about five six years ago. Right about uh, the Marshall football Marshall team. Marshall football team. Yeah, okay. yeah. And uh, I'm told that that movie was very accurate, pretty accurate too. Okay, I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I will see it. Pittsburgh Pirates or Cincinnati Reds? Pittsburgh Pirates. I, I knew you were going to do yeah. that. The greatest athlete I ever saw was Roberto Clemente. I love Roberto and I yeah. the, the the Willie Sargent and that group. Yeah. But I grew up a big staunch Reds fan. Yeah, I've got a ball signed by everybody from the Reds team from from 1972. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I as a kid growing up, I you know followed the Reds somewhere there. But uh, hey, when I was at Pitt. Going through graduate school, the Pirates played at Forbes Field. You could look out the graduate school business windows on the 19th and 20th floor, and you could look into wow. into uh, Forbes Field. So probably some Saturdays I should have been studying all day. <laughs> I went over and watched the Pirates in the afternoon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favorite restaurant to go to? You know, I probably Ruth Chris Steakhouse. I don't go there a lot because it's it's pretty high end, you right, know, pretty right. high end there. But I, you know, maybe a couple times a year, I really like uh, a really really good steak. So maybe a couple of us will go out there and so forth there. Okay. Uh, locally here in Columbus, um, you know, uh, hey, I'm uh, I don't do much cooking, so I eat out <laughs> maybe one or two nights a week, and I kind of like the Rusty Bucket. Oh, I think yeah. they have a good menu yeah. for. Uh, you know, for basically a spur of the moment going in and getting a decent meal and so yeah. forth there. So it's I like the Rusty Bucket. Yeah, I, I like the Bucket as well. What, what's your favorite city to visit? Chicago. <laughs> you just got back from Chicago. Yeah, I know you did. I know. I like. I love going to Chicago. I just love walking on uh, Michigan Avenue yeah. and so forth there, taking in some sporting events there. I'd have to say Pittsburgh would be a very, very close second. Yeah, Pittsburgh, uh, people... Uh, you know, for some people, it may still have that image as a smoky city going right, way back right, to the steel right. days. And, of course, they've erased that many, many years ago. I would say to people, if you've never been to Pittsburgh and you go to Pittsburgh and you have the opportunity, go up on Mount Washington mm-hmm. overlooking the city. And you'll see where the two rivers come together, the Allegheny and the Monongahela. 
meet to form the Ohio River at what is known as the Golden Triangle. It's one of the most beautiful views, I think, of any place I've ever been. So I like Pittsburgh. Yeah. I, I, I haven't been to Pittsburgh in a long time, and, and I recently was speaking in Pittsburgh, and I remember going through the tunnel, and when the city opened up, I was in awe. And I was almost so much in awe, I almost got into a wreck. Yeah. Yeah, so as you start sightseeing and, and then yeah. maneuvering. And I also have to throw New York City in there, too, oh, because yeah. of uh, I've spoken to New York City many, many times. I usually like to go in. You go in the day before, yeah. but if I go in real early the day before, then I can walk around and, and you go through Central Park and take your walk in Central Park. If you think you've seen everything, just go to Central Park. <laughs> You'll see something you've never seen before. Right. <laughs> and you can go the next day and you're still going to see It'll something. There'll still be something new that you've never seen <laughs> before. before. <laughs> Packers or Browns? Definitely the Packers. Definitely Packers. Yeah, definitely I, the Packers. I, I, and if my memory serves me correctly, you're a season ticket holder? I am a season ticket holder. I was very fortunate to get those uh, some years ago. And uh, I get I, what is known as a gold package, and that's okay. three games. Okay. And uh, so that they don't play favorites of who gets the best games, right. the way the gold package works is you get one exhibition game, okay. and then you get the second home game and the fifth home game. You know, in, in the NFL, there's a 16-game schedule, right. so you play eight games at home and eight on the road, and whatever the second game is and whatever the fifth game is, you get those games. Now, I can't go up for all the games, and some years I don't get to go up at all because the Packers might be kicking off at noon on Sunday and Ohio State's playing over here at 3.30 the Saturday before that, the right. day before that. A couple of years ago, I was able to go up to two. I took my son-in-law up to one, and then I took my daughter, Julie, up to one. Uh, it just so happened that the first game, uh, which is the second game of the of the regular season, but my first game was a Thursday night game. Oh wow! So we could uh, yeah. we fly uh, fly to Chicago the morning of the game if it's a night game, and then drive to Green Bay. Okay. And see the game, and you got to get your hotel reservations already <laughs> bands, and yeah. then the next morning you you drive back to Chicago and O'Hare and fly back home and everything. So it's a busy two days and everything. But I would say to people, if you are a football fan and you, if you've never seen a game in Lambeau Field and had the opportunity to do that, definitely uh, take that opportunity because it's a wonderful, wonderful place to see a football game. And I've seen pictures of you in an empty Lambeau Stadium before. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I've done a lot of research up there on uh, on Vince Lombardi. I think one of the pictures you've seen is uh, the Ice Bowl game. Right. Which was uh, played on New Year's Eve day, the 31st of December of 1967. It was 10 below zero when the game started. I guess it was around 15 below zero when it ended. And uh, probably the most famous play in Green Bay Packer history. Uh, the Packers are down by a score of 13 to 10. And Bart Starr, with 13 seconds to go, will go across and behind a block by Jerry Kramer, will score on a one yard quarterback sneak on fourth down to win that game over Tom Landry's Cowboys and put the Packers basically in Super Bowl number two. And uh, I've had my picture taken where I'm told is exactly the place there in that south end zone <laughs> where Bart Starr, way back in 1967, scored that touchdown in uh, about 15 degree below zero weather by the end of the game. <laughs> That's great. What's your favorite quote? I'll have to think about that. Basically, I, I guess... I don't know if this would be a quotation, I guess maybe my favorite principle that I've tried to live by, particularly in later years, is Coach Hayes's pay forward. Pay forward. You know, you're always paying forward. You get to a certain stage in life where, you know, you got fewer years left than right. you've already lived. Right. And you got to be paying forward to the next generation and, 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 and look back and appreciate basically 
everybody that's got you the place where it is yeah. there. John Maxwell has a quote, and I, uh, I'm i going to paraphrase this. I maybe don't have it quite exactly right, but it's that people uh, basically believe in the leader before they will believe in the leader's vision. That's a good and that quote. is you have to buy into the leader right. as a person, right. as a basically a person of character, yeah. before you will buy into his or her vision of the future. Uh, in other words, what John Maxwell is saying is if I can't buy into somebody as a person, there's maybe something about their character right. or something about them that I don't really care for, it would be very hard for me to buy into where they want to lead us. Right. Yep. But if I buy into that person as a person and then as a leader, I'm much more apt to be able to follow them and probably the organization will, as a result, get much more accomplished than, yeah. And we see a lot of that in today's leadership. If we think about coaching and that that that, that quote that you just gave us made me think of Chip Kelly because he lost that locker room. Yeah. Yes, yes, he, he lost did. that locker room, and yeah. after that, I mean, so it yeah. was, he, he had it doesn't matter how great the players right. were, right? Doesn't matter, how, yeah, yeah. Microsoft Excel or a legal pad and a calculator? Microsoft Excel, <laughs> that one surprised me, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, Bear Bryant or Nick Saban? Bear Bryant, I kind of figure that in the last one, July 17th, 1937. What day was that? July 17th, 1937. Okay, 1937. He's not Googling this. I'm watching uh, it. Okay, I see. It was a Saturday. It was a Saturday. So I just Googled July 17th, 1937, and that day was a Saturday. Was it a Saturday? It was yeah. a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Your my, your your photographic memory just astounds me that you yeah, can yeah. that you can do that without well, looking at <laughs> surfing it or doing anything. Yeah. You just went through the calendars and it's a yeah, Saturday. Yeah. Peter, I don't know I really don't know how I do that basically, except I just I can see those calendars. Now nineteen thirty seven, it took me a lot longer than it would be if it was nineteen eighty seven or something like right. that. Because and I relate some of it to the football dates and and I'm not sure how it all works there, but I can just kind of see those pages some way and I miss it. I miss it from time to time there. But 1937, uh, yeah. I thought it was a Saturday yeah, after I worked it back and and you were right. Okay, great, great. Thanks. Happy birthday! <laughs> Your mom's birthday will be coming up here. Yeah, uh, Jack. Like you said, thank you so very much. I've enjoyed this. Uh, I know the audience is going to enjoy this. I love, I love listening to your stories. I love hearing you speak, and I look forward to the next time. Appreciate our relationship very much. Uh, we've become very, very good friends over the years here and so forth. There, I appreciate being your guest, and uh, want to wish you uh, much, much continued success, Peter. Thank you very much. Wow. I feel like we all should receive some college credit for the knowledge that Jack shared with us. I'm always amazed by his photographic memory and the details in his stories. If you ever get an opportunity to attend Jack's course, The Leadership Secrets of Football's Master Coaches, it is well worth the time. I've attended three, and each time I walk away with something new. Now, back in 1978, when Jack got his first radio opportunity in Columbus, unbeknownst to him at the time, but his improv skills were one of the main reasons he's doing sports radio for 38 years. 
He was asked to be on the news sports talk show because he had an interest in Ohio State football. He was told that he was going to be on for about 20 to 30 minutes prior to the Columbus Clippers playoff game that the radio station was broadcasting. If you remember, that game was rained out and the sports director had nothing planned out for the whole evening. So a 20-minute interview turned into a three-hour interview. Improvisation is taking your experience and your knowledge and adapting it to the current situation. And in Jack's case, having trust in his extensive knowledge that he could adapt to any question asked. That trust also helped in calming his nerves. Because remember, this was the first time Jack had been on the radio. There were a number of references to improvisation in his discussion about the leadership styles of the five coaches, Vince Lombardi, Woody Hayes, Newt Rockney, Urban Meyer, and Bo Schembechler. I think each of them possessed a yes-and attitude, which is grounded in the six principles of improvisation. Respect, trust, support, listen, focus, and adapt. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and write a review on my podcast. By writing a review helps promote the podcast to a larger audience. You can go to the show notes for the instructions on how to leave a review. And remember to sign up for the Yes And Challenge on my website at petermargaritas.com. Thank you again for taking time to listen to this podcast. In episode 14, I interviewed Tammy Gayton, founder and CEO of Gayton Wellness LLC, and we have a very timely discussion on nutrition and productivity. So until next time, use Yes And to listen and learn and be a sponge and soak up everything. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.